Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 24, Exodus chapters 24 and 25. For the last several chapters now of Exodus, we have witnessed Jehovah present his covenant to the people of Israel. And unlike the covenants the Lord had made with Noah and Abraham, which were really more the form of promises of God, and therefore didn't really require a formal acceptance by Noah or Abraham, the one that's being made here with Israel at Mount Sinai does require a formal acceptance. And this formal acceptance is called a ratification. All right, so let's go to chapter 24 of Exodus and see just how this covenant between God and Israel was formally, formally rather, uh, ratified. Exodus chapter 24. To Moshe Adonai said, Come up to Adonai, you, Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, and seventy of the leaders of Israel. Prostrate yourselves at a distance. While Moses alone approaches Adonai, the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Moshe came and told the people everything Adonai had said, including all the rulings, and the people answered with one voice, We will obey every word Adonai has spoken. Moshe wrote down all the words of Adonai. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the base of the mountain, and set upright twelve large stones to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent the young man of the people of Israel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to Adonai. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins. The other half of the blood he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud so that the people could hear. And they responded, everything that Adonai has spoken, we will do and obey. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant, which Adonai has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses, Aharon, Nadav, Abihu, and seventy of the leaders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a sapphire stone pavement, as clear as the sky itself. He did not reach out his hand against these notables of Israel. On the contrary, they saw God even as they were eating and drinking. Adonai said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there. I will give you the stone tablets with the Torah and the mitzvot I have written on them so that you can teach them. Moshe got up, also Joshua his assistant, and Moshe went back up the mountain of God. To the leaders he said, Stay here for us until we come back to you. See, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a problem should turn to them. Moshe went up onto the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Adonai stayed on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day he called to Moshe out of the cloud. To the people of Israel, the glory of Adonai looked like a raging fire. On top of the mountain, Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain. He was on the mountain for 40 days and nights. Jehovah tells Moses that he 
Aharon and his two sons, Nadab and Avihu, and 70 of the leaders, probably the chief elders of Israel, are to approach God. Now, we can't be sure whether the number of 70 is precise or symbolic, because in Hebrew literature, rounded numbers like this are often symbolic. Okay. Now, it could be that 70 is the actual number. At the same time, it's also symbolic of totality or comprehensiveness. Okay. That is, this group of 70 represents Israel completely. All of them were to bow down lowly at a distance. Likely this meant that they were worked across the boundary lines, which you can see here in these pictures that were taken at this site. You see these markings here, all right, where there were boundary walls set up, all right, carefully marked with a stone fence, and it separated the holy mountain from the base, all right. Um, and of course, for those of you who are relatively new to this class, this of course is not the traditional site of Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula, but rather a site in Arabia that I now think is much more, much more likely the site for the mountain of God. And frankly, the location where St. Paul, Philo, Josephus, and several others say that the holy mountain of God was located. Now, just to give you a rough idea too, here's kind of a map of where we're talking about. Here's the Sinai Peninsula. These are the two fingers off of the Red Sea, the main body of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba here. Here we have the Gulf of Suez, right? Midian, right? And this, of course, is the uh, southwestern portion of the Arabian Peninsula. And right about in here where I'm pointing is where this here is located. Well, Moses went up, and when he came back down, it was with instructions from Jehovah to recite again all the rulings that God had given to Israel that we see listed in Exodus chapters 19 through 23. The purpose was to present the terms of the covenant to the people, and they responded, we will obey. Now, let's quickly revisit a couple of Hebrew terms, the bar and mishpat. Okay? Because where it says in Exodus 24, verse 3, that Mo Moses spoke all the rulings, or perhaps in your Bibles, the words or laws, the original Hebrew says what Moses spoke to the people was God's mishpat and the bar. Remember what the Hebrew word was for the Ten Commandments? It was the bar, the ten debar, the ten words. And after Israel received the ten debar of Exodus 20, God said in verse 1 of Exodus 21 that he would now give Israel his mishpat, his system of justice. What I believe we should even more rightly characterize as his gospel. Right? So as would be completely proper, absolutely necessary actually, Moses respoke the Ten Commandments and then all the rules and regulations of Exodus 21 through 23 to the people to which they responded they would obey. Now this was just standard operating procedure for ratifying a covenant in those days. Now we're told that Moses wrote those words down. 
Now, unlike what some liberal theologians would have us believe, the fact is we're told right here that all the laws given to this point were recorded, written down at this moment, not later from recollection. Then Moses, it says, built an altar. Recall now, an altar is not a monument. An altar is a place where you sacrifice. It's a place where typically an animal is ritually slaughtered. And then Moses set up 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. These are typically called standing stones. They are memorials all right, used, to, used usually to ascribe something as an act of God and to remember it. And the use of standing stones was commonplace among all the peoples of the ancient Middle East. Now next we see the ceremonial sacrifice. Now this is a necessary and standard part of every Middle Eastern covenant. The animals were killed and then they were cut up into pieces. All right? And in Hebrew, what that statement literally says in Hebrew is the animal was rightly divided. Okay, yeah, that's right. That good old Christian saying of rightly dividing the word was taken completely out of context. All right? Because rightly dividing concerned the proper cutting up of the sacrificial animal. It has nothing to do with biblical interpretation. Okay? The pieces of the sacrificial animal were then arranged around the altar, and then usually the two covenanting parties would walk between the pieces. All right? And we're told, we're not told if this actually happened here, but it's unthinkable that it didn't. Alright? I mean, that's the way a covenant procedure works. Alright? Some of the blood, it says, was captured in basins and it was sprinkled upon the people. Why? Because this signified that the blood of the covenant included them. So it covered them. Now, interestingly, we're told that Young men were sent to do the sacrificing. Now, many commentaries say, well, it was necessary that young men were used, presumably picked because they were big and strong, because it was bulls that were going to be sacrificed. And bulls are big and heavy. Well, yet in later Torah passages, all right, that, that mention the sacrificing of bulls, which, by the way, was completely commonplace, there's no admonition to use young or particularly strong men to lug the bull carcasses around. Okay, here's why. The young men spoken of were not simply any young men. They were the firstborn. Okay, we see in this passage not that they were but strong men who did the heavy lifting while somebody else performed the ritual. Rather, these young men actually did the sacrificial procedure. Why didn't the Levite priests do the sacrificing? After all, that was probably their primary duty because the priesthood hasn't been established yet. We're a little ways from that. Okay? Before the priesthood was established, which is going to happen very shortly now, each family separately performed whatever rituals they traditionally followed. And we don't know 
precisely just what all these rituals consisted of. Sacrificing animals and food and sacred objects was normal and customary throughout all known ancient Eastern cultures. And likely the Israelites down in Egypt did the same thing. But the question is, who within each household, within each family, actually performed these sacrifices and rituals? Our usual answer is that it would be the eldest male, the father, maybe the grandfather, if he was still living in an in the household, but that was not the case. Okay. Rather, it was the firstborn male all right, who performed these functions. Remember, firstborn does not mean the most senior male in the house. It simply means the first son of a man's wife produced for him. All right. The father or the grandfather of the house were not necessarily firstborns. The rea- th- th- this reality we're discussing here of Hebrew life is going to play a very significant role later on in Leviticus and, and in Numbers. The firstborn, as of this moment, more or less had the position of the family priest, right? but only until the Lord established an official centralized priesthood, right? which was, of course would come from the tribe of who? Levi, Levi, the Levites. Once the priesthood was established, then individual families could no longer perform their own sacrifices. It was outlawed. They couldn't perform sacrificial rituals anymore on their own altars in their own way. Just as significantly... The thousands of Israelite firstborns lost their valued status as the family priest, just like that. Okay, And in later Torah portions, we're going to find subtle mentions of the reluctance of families to give up their own private rituals. And of firstborns to release their rights as the family priest to certain members of the tribe of Levi. They weren't real thrilled about this. Well, after Moses goes up the mountain and comes back down, the book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments and the laws is read once again, and once again the people respond, they will obey. Again, typical covenant ritual. Then in verse 9, something extraordinary and unexpected happens. God permits Aaron, his two sons, and the seventy chief elders of Israel to cross that boundary wall and set foot on his holy mountain. Of course. The blood of the covenant sacrifice had atoned for the sins of the people. And so now their representatives could approach God. This is exactly as it is with us in Christ. When we accept Yeshua as Lord and Savior, Savior, we are spiritually sprinkled, if you would, with his blood, covered by his blood, and now we are fit to approach God, pure in his eyes, whereas before we could not. And it says that all these men saw God. 
Now, though considering that no man can see God and live, and that the description of what they saw is something very similar to what St. John 1,400 years later would see, that is, the area where God stood was paved with precious stones, this had to have been a vision of some kind. Okay, The Jewish sage Rashbam says that what happened here is quite similar to what happened with Abraham at the moment of the cutting of the covenant that God had made with him. Obviously, that smoking fire pot was not the actual image of the Lord. And what those men who were permitted to climb up to Mount Sinai saw was not the actual image of the Lord. And it says they dined with God and as opposed to the usual results of viewing God's presence, which is destruction, all right, they were given permission to remain there. And this, this idea of not being destroyed for being in God's presence is what is meant by the phrase, and God did not reach out his hand against them. Okay. Now I think what we're seeing here is a prefiguring of that great and future marriage feast of the Lamb, where all believers will be committed in formal marriage, as opposed to our current state not of marriage, but of betrothal. Right. We will eventually come together in a completed and formal union with Christ, and it will be accompanied with a great ceremonial feast. This eating a meal together is yet another indispensable part of the covenant ritual. It completes the covenant. Now, once again... Let me remind you, our covenant, our union with Christ is not yet fully complete. But it will be 100% complete upon the formalizing of the covenant of Christ when we who have accepted the terms of that covenant, which is faith in Yeshua of Nazareth, sit down at the feet of our Lord and dine with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now that's goosebump city, isn't it? Well, the ceremony was now over and the covenant complete. And it has never been renewed because there's never been any need to renew it because the covenant's permanent. At least it is until the end of our age. Well, in verse 12, Yehovah calls Moses back to his mountain to give him the ten words, the ten commandments, written in stone on stone tablets by God's own finger. Now, interestingly, it says Joshua went up with Moses. Now, although Joshua is only briefly mentioned and then nothing is further said about him, this still shows how early on God had begun the process of separating out and training Joshua, son of Nun, all right, the next, to be the next leader of Israel. Aharon and Hur were left in charge of the encampment. Hur was not a son of Aaron. But tradition says he was a son-in-law. All right. In other words, this was this was a husband of one of Aaron's daughters. At the least, it was obvious that even above Aaron's own natural sons, Hur was a specially selected man to be Aaron's assistant. 
Well, we're told that the people of Israel all witnessed God's glory, or in Hebrew, kavod. They witnessed God's kavod, all right, that burned like an unquenchable fire on top of the holy mountain. And on top of that mountain, surrounded by Jehovah's awesome presence, Moses stayed for 40 days and 40 nights, obviously receiving the most intense and important teaching that a man had ever experienced. However, we're also told that the first six of those days, the cloud hid the Lord's presence. And it was on the seventh day that the Lord began to give Moses more instruction. Those first six days were a kind of preparation for Moses, a time of spiritual contemplation before he would stand in the very presence of God Almighty. Well, let's move on to chapter 25. But don't open your Bibles just yet. Because before we read this chapter, I'd like to do a sort of introduction to it. Chapter 24 ended the third division of Exodus called Covenant and Law. With chapter 25, we enter the fourth division, a new and central theme of Exodus concerning the wilderness, tabernacle, and all the rituals that are associated with it. Now, as important are the beginning acts of Jehovah to create the world and the creation of mankind and Adam's fall and the flood that temporarily purged the earth of rampant wickedness and the story of Abraham as the first Hebrew and the story of Jacob as the founder of the tribes of Israel and the history of Israel's captivity in Egypt and now the Hebrews' exodus. All right, as important as all these things are, little carries the importance of what we're about to study. The wilderness tabernacle, the earthly dwelling place of God. Now let me tell you just how important it is. It's important enough that all or parts of 50 chapters in the Torah are taken up with the building and service of that tabernacle. Okay. Every minute detail of its construction, the implements to be used there, the garments to be worn by the priests, how the cultic rituals were to be conducted, who was to conduct them, and far more was laid out by Jehovah with the repeated demand to make it after the pattern I have shown you. Okay. The sacrificial system is painstakingly explained. Which animals are suitable for the various sacrifices? Which kind of sacrifices for what purpose? How the animals to be killed and processed? Who can partake of the meat? All right. Who can't? Far more. Now please hear this. The Jewish authors of the New Testament assumed that the readers of the various letters we typically call epistles all right, and gospels that eventually became collected into the biblical canon already understood the purpose of the holy tabernacle and the, ta and the sacrificial system. The New Testament writers begin at a point where it's a given that the readers are already familiar with all the essential points of Israelite society 
Israelite tradition and worship, including the temple and its services, the complex sacrificial and purification rites, Israel's history, how marriage and family life functioned, and so on. And where does one get all this prerequisite understanding? Well, if one doesn't live in that society, then it has to be by studying and understanding the records of that society and the laws that the Lord ordained to govern it. The Old Testament. The Torah is all about instruction. And so it is that the tabernacle and the sacrificial system are to teach us the gospel. Okay? It is to teach us the purpose of Israel. It is to teach us the holiness of Jehovah. It's to teach us the great and horrible cost that would be necessary for all of our sins to be pardoned. Okay? Now we're going to find a number of names as we begin our study of the wilderness tabernacle. And it was called at times a sanctuary in Hebrew, mikdash, okay? meaning a sacred and holy place. It was also called a tabernacle in Hebrew, mishkan, which means a dwelling place. In this case, a dwelling place of Jehovah. Tent is another name we're going to find. All right, in Hebrew, oel. All right, which indicated a simple Bedouin-style cloth tent. Okay, the tabernacle of the congregation is another term used in Hebrew, oel moed. Okay, it meant most literally the tent of the appointed times. Another expression was the tabernacle of testimony in Hebrew, mishkan ha'edut. Okay, the dwelling place of the testimony. That is the place where the Ten Commandments is housed. It's been called the wilderness tabernacle. It's been called the tent of Moses. Now, so while the precise meanings of each of these terms focuses on a different aspect of the, of the tabernacle's essence, all of them are still referring to that same structure. Okay? That portable dwelling place of Jehovah that the Israelites used beginning at Mount Sinai and all throughout their time in the wilderness and then for about 400 years after that, until a permanent stone and wood building was erected by Solomon. Okay. That stone and wood structure they called the temple. The temple and the tabernacle are two different things, but they were built for the same purpose. Actually, the temple was just kind of a permanent, non-movable version of the tabernacle. And now... Even the temple has been replaced. Because today these delicate fleshly bodies we believers walk around in are the tabernacle. The temple. The place where Jehovah's Holy Spirit dwells. I mean, interesting, isn't it? Right? How the original tabernacle was a mobile and temporary tent. And long after it was replaced, once again, the dwelling place of God, us, is a tent with a limited lifespan. And we've been designed to go wherever he would direct us, with him in us. Kind of an interesting circle, isn't it? Israel would move around for 40 years. So God's dwelling place had to move with them if his presence was to be with them. 
Then Israel settled in the promised land, so God's dwelling place settled in the land. Therefore, if you wanted to come to God, he came to the temple in Israel. Starting with Yeshua, we became the Lord's temple, his earthly, not heavenly dwelling place. So when we take his word to the world, he goes with us. Well, the tabernacle had one primary purpose, a place that was especially clean and holy so that Jehovah could dwell amongst his people. Secondarily, it was a place where his people, his congregation, could meet with him. Okay. The tabernacle also had one primary feature. It was visible and it was placed in the center of the encampment of Israel. Okay. It was placed there to remind the people, the people of God, of his constant presence among them. It was there to remind the people they were to stay away from other gods from idolatry and to serve Jehovah and Jehovah alone. The Israelites' encampment consisted of hundreds of thousands of tents surrounding the tabernacle. Here we have the tabernacle in the center with all the tribes encamped around it. The tribes were organized in an exacting order, carefully placed at each of the four sides of the tabernacle. To the east right, were the tribes of Issachar, Judah, right, and uh, Zebulun, composed of 186,000 men. To the west, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Benjamin, consisting of 108,100 men, camped on the north side, Asher, Don, and Naphtali, and their 157,000 men, and on the south, 151,000 men who composed the tribes of Simeon, Reuben, and Gad. The Levites were placed closest to the tabernacle and they were divided up by family and, and, and placed around all four sides forming kind of an inner ring right, between the tabernacle and all the other people. Right, kind of like a buffer zone. Right. And the Levites numbered 22,300 men. Now notice I said men, because any census of Israel that you will read in the Bible only counted men. Right. And even then, only men capable of fighting in the military. Those males who were too young, too old, disabled, they weren't counted in the, the census. Okay. Therefore, when you add in women, children, sickly, elderly. There was something on the order of three million Israelites surrounding that tabernacle. Now that was a tent city. The order of the tribe's placement around the tabernacle was not at random. Okay. Each set of three tribes represented the camping together of those who were one another's nearest blood relatives. Okay, for example, Manasseh and Ephraim, over here, carried the authority of their father, who? Joseph. They were coupled with Benjamin. Benjamin Joseph had the same mother, Rachel. All right, therefore, those three tribes formed one of the four divisions. 
So they camped together. Simeon and Reuben were sons of Jacob's first wife, Leah. Since Levi, another son of Leah, was set apart as the priestly tribe and no longer considered one of the twelve tribes, Gad took his, his place in the encampment organization. Why Gad? Because Gad was a son of Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah. Okay? Judah, Issachar, Zebulun were Leah's youngest three sons. So, they were organized to camp together. Dan and Naphtali were born to Rachel's handmaiden, Bela. They were coupled with Leah's handmaiden's youngest son, Asher. So you see the, the thinking behind the way this was set up. So the order of encampment was kind of a, a pecking order of the tribes. And I'm sure that because particularly in the tribal system, blood was definitely thicker than water, all right, by grouping them in this way, trouble between the tribes was kept to a minimum. Now notice the symbolism of placing Moses, Aaron, and the priests, all right, and the Levite subgroups, all right, um, the Merites, the Kohites, and the Gershonites close in to surround the tabernacle like a like a moat around a castle. Okay, and all twelve regular tribes are stationed further away, right, from God's dwelling place. Here we have the concept of mediation at work. Priests from the set-apart Levite tribe are about to become the intermediaries between the people and God. The people cannot come directly to God. They have to go through the priests in Jehovah's system. Okay, So the camp presents a visualization of that concept. I mean, the people of the twelve tribes literally have to go through the priest to get to where God is. Right? And the way it worked was that the people went to the priests who then went to God for them. Right? This whole concept was prophetic and prefigured, prefiguring of one of Christ's most important ministries. He was to be our high priest, our mediator between Jehovah and us, his people. We cannot go directly to the Father, so we go to Messiah, who goes to Father Jehovah for us. Now, each of the groupings or divisions of three tribes, remember four groups, one for each direction, of three, had a dominant tribe, a leader tribe, which was Judah in the east. Okay, It was Dan in the north, Reuben in the south. Right? And remember I told you, and Ephraim, of course, in, in, the, in the west. Right? And remember I told you some time back to always pay attention to the direction east in the Bible. It always has spiritual significance. The tabernacle was always set up so that the holy place faced east. And that is where Judah was located. Judah, the tribe that was to carry the authority, according to Jacob's blessing, for all Israel. That is, Judah was to be the preeminent tribe that ruled over all the other tribes. And of course, what tribe? Did Yeshua the king come from? Judah. 
Notice that at the opposite end of the encampment, to the west, but nearest to the holy place, all right, um, was the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim had been given the other half of that split firstborn blessing, according to Jacob's blessing. That is, while Judah was given the right to rule over Israel, Ephraim was given the tribe's wealth, the blessing of fruitfulness. The Bible sometimes uses the term a double portion, double portion blessing. And we studied this very carefully in Genesis 48, 49, and 50. And this is, that study is very critical in understanding the entire Bible. So if you missed it, I heartily suggest you get the CDs of this. All right. I think those of you who went through that particular study found it pretty eye-opening. So the placement of these tribes around the tabernacle had tremendous prophetic symbolism and meaning. Now, let me show you something else that's going to help you understand Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. Follow me carefully now. Each of the four dominant or leader tribes, as they were spaced around the compass, around the uh, tabernacle, had an emblem, a specific emblem by which they were known. In fact, all 12 tribes did. We all know that the symbol of Judah is the lion. We even call Christ the lion of Judah. Well, the tribe of Ephraim's symbol was a male calf, a bull, sometimes shown as a male ox. Dan's tribal system is a uh, tribal uh, symbol is a little more of a mystery as is the tribe itself, frankly. Right? At times it was a snake, the symbol. At other times it was a flying snake, and more traditionally, it's been accepted that it was an eagle. Right? Reuben's symbol was a man, a human being. Now, the four dominant leader tribes, which represented, if you would, all twelve tribes, each had a symbol: a lion, an eagle, a bull or an ox, and a man. And these tribes surrounded God's earthly dwelling place, the tabernacle. They protected the sanctuary of God from outsiders, and the Lord protected them from their enemies. Now, nothing in the Bible stands alone. Okay, it's all connected. And to demonstrate this, I'm not going to have you turn to Ezekiel 1.10, but I'm going to, I'm going to read it to you. And we're going to take a look at Ezekiel 1.10. Ezekiel was a prophet that lived about 700 years after the time of Moses. And God seemed to communicate to Ezekiel quite a bit of the time through visions. And some of his visions were real lulus, let me tell you. Right? The vision he had in the first chapter of Ezekiel begins with a view of heaven and of God's throne area. And it speaks about his seeing four living creatures there. And they had four wings and four faces. Now, notice Ezekiel 1 verse 10. I'm going to read it to you. And, and as for the appearance of their faces, they had human faces in front. Each of the four had a lion's face on the right, a bull's face on the left, and each of the four had an eagle's face towards the rear. And we're told that whatever, wherever the Spirit of God went, they went. Hmm. 
The four living creatures that Ezekiel saw in heaven surrounding God's throne had the faces of a lion, an eagle, a bull, and a man. Now, where did we just see those same symbols? Right. Those were the representative symbols of the four dominant tribes of Israel. Okay. Coincidence? I don't think so. Even more, just like wherever the tabernacle which held the Spirit of God went, the Israelites went with it. So these strange creatures in heaven went wherever the Spirit of God went in heaven. Now notice something else. The lion was to the right. The right of anything in the Bible was symbolic of the best or the dominant or the strongest or the most important. And at times it was even called the holy position. For instance, your right hand, you talk about if your right hand should offend you, or your right eye, pluck it out. All right, it means your best, it's the most important. All right, left was symbolic of, of a little lesser value, not unimportant, but lesser. Okay, right was also equivalent to east. Right was the dominant and holy, east is the dominant and holy. The lion was on the living creature's right. Judah was encamped to the right, on the east side of the tabernacle. The left side is equivalent to west. The bull face was on the left side of the heavenly living creature, just as Ephraim, whose symbol is the bull, was encamped on the left side, the west side of the tabernacle. The front, or the south side of the living creature, was a man, a human. A man symbolized Reuben, who camped on the front, or the south side of the tabernacle. And finally, at the back, the rear side of the living creature was the face of an eagle. The eagle was the symbol of Dan, who camped on the rear side, the north side of the tabernacle. Ah, oh, but it doesn't end there. Open your Bibles to Revelation, chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from uh, verses 4 through 8, let's say. Verses through, 4 through 8. Revelation chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothing and wearing golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came forth lightnings and voices and thunderings. And before the throne were seven flaming tor torches, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living beings covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living being was a, like a lion, the second living being like an ox, the third living being had a face of a human, and the fourth living being like a flying eagle. Hmm. See, this is the vision given now to John, St. John. Not surprisingly, it is quite similar to that of Ezekiel's because both had visions of heaven and God's throne. Now remember, what was the primary purpose of the tabernacle? 
It was God's dwelling place, if you would, his throne room on earth. And Moses was told to make the tabernacle how? After the pattern he was shown by God. The tabernacle was the earthly physical replica, as much as is possible, made after the pattern of God's heavenly spiritual dwelling place, as was, by the way, the Garden of Eden, a physical earthly replica of God's heavenly dwelling place. So Revelation 4 speaks once again of these living creatures or living beings, a lion, an ox or a bull, human, an eagle corresponding to those tribes. So these living creatures in Ezekiel and living creatures in Revelation are the same creatures and they're directly associated with the four dominant tribes of Israel that represents all Israel. In fact, the living creatures have direct correlation even as concerns which direction or which side of the living creature each of the faces is placed and it is exactly as the tribes of Israel were placed around the tabernacle. So again we have this amazing reality of duality. Ezekiel's and John's Revelation visions were of heaven, or more specifically, of God's dwelling place in heaven. The living creatures are some type of guardian or servant spirit for God, and, and they surround his throne. So the tabernacle, the physical dwelling place of God, was built in the image of God's heavenly throne. The four dominant tribes were the physical, physical model. The physical model of the spiritual creatures right down to the way they surrounded and moved right along with the dwelling place, the tabernacle. This is what likely why the various Israelite tribes had their symbols modeled after those creatures, because each of these tribes were to serve a specific purpose in relation to serving God. Wild. I mean, don't, don't forget this. Okay, because this information might wow your friends in a game of Bible trivia at the very least. Okay. So, suddenly those strange living beings we've all heard about aren't so strange after all, are they? They actually relate to something. We'll go a little further in chapter 25 now next week. Okay, that's it for tonight.